Today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. It is the Sabbath day. It is a day that the Lord has set aside for, our, uh, for a special weekly encounter with Him. And I would like to encourage you all to uh, make the most out of this Sabbath. And to, to have joy because that's what the Bible says. It's the day the Lord has made so let us be glad and rejoice in it. Right? The Bible also says that God's remnant people will be commandment keeping people. But that shouldn't take away from the joy we should have. One thing must go along with the other. Am I right? We should, like David says, we should have pleasure, we should have joy in keeping God's commandments. They shouldn't be a burden. They should come out of a heart that is thankful, a heart that is grateful because of all the Lord has done for us. And so, let us be glad and rejoice. I hope you can have a great Sabbath today. I am following up with uh, the topic, the theme I started uh, three weeks ago, three Sabbaths ago, on the sanctuary. And before we go any further, I'd like to invite you to join me as I pray and ask for God's direction. Because we should always approach the Bible with humility, right? God has been merciful and good enough that He has revealed His word, His will to us. And we should approach this text with humility. So please join me as far as possible. We continue in your presence, Lord. And we feel privileged to be able to come before you and And pray and ask, Lord, for your direction. And we ask, Lord, that you may be with us here this morning. That only your voice may be heard. That all of our human thoughts may be subject to your will. I ask, Lord, humbly that you may use me as your instrument. To open up scripture and speak your word and that your word may come out alive and bless each and every one of us, of us, beginning with me. I ask, Lord, that you may hide me behind the cross of Christ. And I ask that you may give each and every one of us a humble spirit, a teachable spirit. That we may come, Lord, devoid of any human presuppositions and be willing to hear your voice. We ask for the presence of your angels, both in our midst and surrounding us. We submit fully to you, Lord. You are the Lord of our lives. You are the Lord of the church. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit may be here in our midst, assisting us to understand the word of God. I ask you these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you, when you read the forecast, the weather forecast, and you see there, for example, that tomorrow it's going to rain, and they usually give you a 30% chance or a 70%, 80%. You know, even when they say that it's a 90% chance of rain, there is always a possibility that there will be no rain at all, right? 
On the other hand, if I tell you that 5 plus 5 equals 10, whether today or tomorrow or 20 years from now, it will still be the same. 5 plus 5 will still be 10. So there's a popular saying that, that says, the numbers don't lie, right? And the title of my message today is a number, 1844. Now, numbers don't lie. And uh, I could spend here a couple hours, maybe an hour and a half, a couple hours, uh, showing you that the Bible clearly indicates that something special happened in 1844. And, but I will not do that. Because the numbers don't lie. And my purpose here is not only to prove you mathematically and based on history itself, right? Based on a, a very solid foundation that is history itself, that 1844 is indeed a special date where something special started. Rather than doing that, I mean, there are books on that. Many books have been written. Even the website I showed you, you can have that information there. I would like, I'll talk about, I'll talk something about the timing still in the course of my message, but I'll focus on the what, and I'll focus on the uh, where and why is this taking place right now. Now, the book of Daniel, particularly the chapter from which our scripture reading came this morning, it contains a lot, it, it sends us back to a lot of the imagery that was part of the cultic experience of the people of Israel. There are a lot of elements in the book of Daniel that sends us back to the religious experience of the people of Israel. If you are reading a book, and you decide, if you decide to read a book and you decide to start in the 8th chapter, for example, in the 10th chapter, uh, the book may be making reference to things that should have been read in the first or second chapter. But if you never read those chapters, you may not fully grasp what it is all about in the 10th chapter or later into the book. And so when Daniel makes reference to, uh, to the daily, when Daniel makes reference to the sanctuary, when da uh, Daniel makes reference to the Prince of Hosts, we might as well go back in the Bible and try to learn from the early books of the Bible in the Old Testament, where there is some context for us to understand what that is all about. And so when we come to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, and we read that, For 2,300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed, that should send us, send us back to when and where God instituted the cleansing of the sanctuary, so we can better understand it. Now in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, particularly in chapter 16, God gives Moses ample instruction, detailed instruction, on how the sanctuary ought to be cleansed once a year. And it was a special ceremony, it was a special ritual, when the high priest would be allowed to go into the most holy place of the sanctuary. And it was the only time in the year, the only day in the year when he was authorized to walk into the holy, the most holy place. Did I say holy? Uh, the most holy place of the sanctuary. Of course, he, he would have to go first through the holy place to get into the most holy place. But only once a year, 
the high priest and the high priest only was allowed to go into the most holy place. And he would go into the most holy place, into the sanctuary, not on empty hands. He was supposed to bring the blood of animals that had been sacrificed. And he was supposed to sprinkle the blood of the animal on the east side of the mercy seat, where the law of the testimony was there inside. And he was supposed to sprinkle with his fingers seven times on the mercy seat. And then he was supposed to leaving the most holy place, Sprinkle with his finger the blood of the animal seven times upon the golden altar of incense. And as he would be doing that, God said that by doing that, he would be cleansing the sanctuary. Now, it is interesting because this is not about cleaning up the sanctuary, but it's about cleansing the sanctuary. Because when the, most, when the high priest would sprinkle blood, Onto those pieces of furniture in the sanctuary. He was actually adding to the dirt of the sanctuary. But he was cleansing the sanctuary at the same time. The Bible says that uh, the, without blood there is no remission of sin. So what the high priest was actually doing. He was removing in, in a symbolic way. He was removing from the sanctuary the guilt of every sin that had been confessed. And transferred into the sanctuary both by the blood of the animals and by the person of the high priest himself. That was what the high priest was doing. Now that was a most solemn day in the religious calendar of the people of Israel. It was the most important and solemn day which happened once a year only. Now every day, day by day, animals would be sacrificed. People might bring their animals and there was the burnt offering that was burning day and night. But once a year there was this special ritual. And the people of Israel took it very, very much seriously. They would prepare for that. They would make sure that every known sin, every sin that they were aware of in their own lives would have been confessed. Would have been left behind. And then by doing that, all, this, all the guilt of all the sins would have been transferred to the sanctuary. And the high priest would cleanse the sanctuary by performing that ritual. That day was called the Yom Kippur. Which is the day of atonement. The day of atonement was the day when the sanctuary was cleansed. And of course, into the next year... Other sins would be confessed and the sanctuary would still accumulate the guilty of those sins until the next day of atonement when the sanctuary would again be cleansed. And so when the Bible talks about the cleansing of the sanctuary, it is talking about the day of atonement. But there is one other element. In the Jewish mind, when the day of atonement was approaching, it was for them actually a day of judgment. It was a day when they knew that they had to confess, to repent, confess, and abandon their sins. And make themselves prepared for that day. Because any sin that would not have been confessed, any sin that they would be still clinging on to, would be for their own condemnation. And the Bible says that those who would not afflict their souls, those who would not rest and afflict their souls, would be cut off from the people of Israel. So for all intents and purposes, the Day of Atonement 
which was the day of the cleansing of the sanctuary, was also a day of judgment. Because on that day, if you were right with God, if you had confessed your sins and sought forgiveness for them, you would be all right. But if not, that would be the day where people would die effectively. So it was the day of judgment. And even today in traditional Judaism, the Yom Kippur is still regarded as a day of judgment. It's still regarded as the last appeal to the believer. As the last call that they might repent and ask forgiveness for their sins. And traditional Jews still do that to this date. A common greeting when the day of Yom Kippur approaches is, May all go well with you. Or, may you have a good sealing. May God seal you in the book of life. That's how this was perceived. And so here when we come to Daniel, and Daniel says, Until 2,300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. This is talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary, which is the same as the Day of Atonement, which is the same as judgment. Now, we must understand that, and the Bible, the Bible itself, in, in even the book of Daniel, when you come to chapter 7 in Daniel, in verse 9 and 10, Daniel describes that in his vision he saw a, a, a scene of judgment in heaven. Then you come to chapter 8, verse 14. The Bible talks about the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, a detailed study. When you compare Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And you put together all pieces. You, you will understand. And it can be demonstrated from the Bible. That the scene of judgment in Daniel chapter 7. Is exactly the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary in chapter 8. Not only because the Jews regarded it as so, but because the Bible explains itself. And the judgment seen in Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10 is exactly the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8. Now, I said I was not going to focus on the timing of this event. But I should mention two things. One is, when you think about the people of Israel... And their exodus from Egypt. You read the book of Exodus in the Bible. Which is the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. And you see that the first thing that happens. Is that they were effectively delivered. From uh, Egyptian slavery. They were delivered. And then they were taken into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness. The Lord made a covenant with them. The Lord entered into a covenant with them. And then the next thing that happens is that the Lord tells Moses to build a sanctuary. Where he would be able to tabernacle. He would be able to dwell with the people. And so you see the sequence. It is deliverance from slavery. It is God's covenant with his people. And it is the sanctuary. The promised land. The promised land doesn't even show up in Exodus 20, in, in, in the book of Exodus. It will come later on in the Pentateuch. But you see that they only got into the promised land after all of that had happened. Delivered from slavery, deliverance from slavery, God's covenant, the sanctuary, and finally the promised land. That is a good example of what you and I live today. 
Because at some point we gave our lives to Jesus. We accepted him as our savior. And we have been delivered from the slavery to sin. And the Lord has entered into a covenant with us. And then comes the message of the sanctuary. The message of the judgment. Which precedes the second coming of Jesus. And the reason I'm saying this is because. This is one of the reasons why we understand that from 1844, this judgment in heaven has already started. Not only that, when Daniel had his vision in Daniel chapter 7, and he saw the scene of judgment in heaven in verses 9 and 10, he said, he said I saw the ancient of days, and I saw the thrones, and I saw the books are opened, the court sat, and the session began. He sees this scene of judgment in heaven prior to the moment when the kingdom is given to the Son of God for him to rule over the whole world. And so the judgment must precede the coming of Jesus according to the prophecy in Daniel. But what kind of judgment is that? What is the nature of this judgment? What exactly is this day of atonement? What exactly is this pre-advent judgment? That's why we say pre-advent judgment. Because it happens prior to the coming of Jesus. What is the nature of the day of atonement? Which is the same as this pre-advent judgment? What is the nature of this cleansing of this sanctuary? Well, another thing I'd like to point your attention to is the fact that the sacrifices in the old tabernacle, the sacrifices in the tabernacle in the wilderness, every animal whose blood was shed was actually a symbol, was actually a type that pointed out to whom? To Jesus. No wonder Jesus is called in the Bible the Lamb of God. So every animal that was sacrificed as a sin offering and even as a burnt offering, they were pointing to Jesus as the the greatest sacrifice as the real one sacrifice he was the real sacrifice the bible says that the blood of animals cannot atone for sin so they were only a symbol a type pointing to the reality to the real lamb of god who was going to come and die likewise this reality cannot escape us we must be attentive to this as much as the animals which were sacrificed pointed out to jesus the, the work of the high priest on the day of atone, atonement also pointed out to something greater that was yet to come. And in fact, the Bible says that today we have a high priest. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 and 15. This is not pastor who is saying the Bible says that we have a high priest today. Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 14, 15 say, the Bible says, Seeing then that we have a great, what? High priest who has passed through the heavens. And, and here is the name of the high priest. Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin and so if Jesus is the high priest today because the Bible says that we have a high priest now 
he must be exercising the duties of a high priest right now. This is another confirmation that the pre-advent judgment, the day of atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary is already taking place. And it's taking place since 1844. What is the nature of this cleansing of the sanctuary? Some questions might be asked. Is the heavenly sanctuary defiled after all? That it needs to be cleansed? Well, it is clearly making reference to the heavenly sanctuary. Because Daniel saw the, the scene of judgment in heaven. Daniel says clearly that it was in heaven that he saw this. And so we are talking here about the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And not the cleansing of the old earthly tabernacle. The cleansing of the tabernacle was just a type that pointed to something greater. And so someone might ask, oh, are we saying then that the heavenly sanctuary, the dwelling of God in heaven is defiled somehow that it needs cleansing? Are we saying that God needs a judgment? That books need to be opened so that God can decide whether or not to save that person? No, we are not saying that. God knows everything. God doesn't need books. He knows even the desires of your heart. He knows everything. And the heavenly sanctuary, the abode of God, the dwelling of God is not the file. There is only a pure, heavenly, perfect human being, uh, beings living there. Not human beings. Heavenly beings living there. There are some human beings too. But anyway, there are others who are not human. So it's not about cleansing the heavenly sanctuary from any defilement or impurity that exists there. The day of atonement, the real day of atonement we're living in. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. The pre-advent judgment is not about God. It's not for the benefit of God. It is about His character, but not for His benefit. It is for the benefit of the believer to begin with. How do I know that? Let's go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 22. Daniel seven twenty-two. The Bible says, Until the ancient of days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And so the judgment is after all not for the benefit of God. It's not for the benefit of the heavenly sanctuary. The pre-advent judgment is for the benefit of the saints of the Most High. In fact, it is so much in their favor. It is so much to their benefit that they end up possessing the kingdom after that. So the judgment turns out to be a real blessing to God's people. The judgment turns out to be a real blessing for those who are, who are right with God. And they come to possess the kingdom. So what is this judgment all about? What is the day of atonement all about? If Jesus is the high priest, and if the Bible confirms so, Jesus is performing now. An amplified work, just like the high priest would do on the day 
of the, of the atonement, of the day of atonement. Jesus is cleansing the sanctuary, but Jesus is interceding for us. That's what the high priest would do. The high priest would be someone who would appear before God, would come right into the most holy place where God would manifest His presence, and He would do that as a representative of the people. The Bible says clearly in Leviticus 16 that no one was to, was to be allowed into the sanctuary when the high priest was there performing the Day of Atonement rituals. It was only the high priest who was allowed there. And he would be, be going there in the very presence of God as a representative of the people, interceding for the people, interceding before God on the people's behalf. So what is Jesus doing then? You see, unfortunately, some people have misunderstood this. Some people look at the high priest here on earth, and because the high priest himself was a sinner, and he was to appear before God representing the people, people then think that Jesus is doing the same in heaven, but in the sense that he is now pleading with God to be favorable to us. As if Jesus is the one who loves you, Jesus is the one who gave his life for you, and now he has to appear before the Father who is an angry God. And he has to plead, please be merciful toward them. This is not true. This is absolutely a deception. Don't buy into that. The Father and the Son are not involved in a kind of celestial arm wrestle. Where one is trying to get favor toward the, those poor creatures. And the other is there very harsh, very angry. At the bad things that we do. No. This is not the God you and I serve. This is not the God, the God that the Bible pictures for us. The Bible says that God is a God of love. Right? There is a text in the Bible where Jesus says. John 16.26. John 16.26. Jesus says, says. In that day you will pray the Father directly. You'll ask him directly. I will not be asking the Father for anything for you. And so you think, why does Jesus say that he is not going to ask us, to ask the Father anything for us? That we are going to ask directly to the Father. Well, verse 27, John 16, 27 gives the answer. Because Jesus says, you don't have to ask me to ask anything to the Father. Because the Father, what? Loves you. The Father loves you. The Father loves you. And there is a text in John chapter 3 verse 16, which most Christianity knows that by heart. That starts right there saying that for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son. And so who loved the world? God the Father, he loves you and I, he loved the world. And the Bible says that not only he loved the Bible says that the God, the God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whomsoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so this intercession of Jesus is not about Jesus trying to buy the favor of the Father. Because the Father loves you Himself. But what this is about... Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. 
And many, many Christians have this text memorized. That's a good one to have memorized. John writing to those around him at his time and to us today. He says, my little children, 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have what? An advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Unfortunately, we have a lawyer here in the church. Unfortunately, we look at this and we, our minds are drawn into the earthly, the human uh, tribunals. And we think about the advocate who is there trying to defend you against the prosecutor, trying to defend you before the judge and hoping that the judge will do something for you. And we transfer this picture to Jesus. But the Bible is not saying that we have an advocate against the Father or an advocate before the Father. It's an advocate what? With the Father. So the Father and the Son are together in this. The Father and the Son are together to save you. The Father and the Son are all the time trying to surround you with their care and to save you. And the hope that John had is that we would not fall into sin, is that we would not backslide. But if that would happen, his words of encouragement are that you have both the Father and the Son struggling and fighting for you and coming together with you. So on a daily basis, the Father and the Son are together to help you in your struggles with temptations, with evil around you. But that's not all that the pre-advent judgment is all about. That's not all that the cleansing of the sanctuary is all about. That's not all that this day of atonement, the real day of atonement is about. In Acts chapter 9 verse 4. Acts chapter 9 verse 4 and 5. This is when Paul was going to Damascus. And it was just noontime. At midday he had this vision. A bright light coming from heaven. It was brighter than the sun at noon. Paul was even blinded by that light. But in verse 4. The Bible says that he fell to the ground. Acts chapter 9 verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you were persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And so Jesus identifies with you. Paul was literally persecuting those who were Christians. Those who were of the way. But Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, you are in fact persecuting me. And so this is another thing Jesus is doing. He's not only coming and give you strength and helping you not fall into sin. And even if you do fall into sin, he's there to, to uh, lift you up again. But Jesus also identifies with you. So it doesn't matter what, is, what you are going through. It doesn't matter if you have a good life or a very difficult one. It doesn't matter if you are suffering because of things you did in the past. And you can't clear your mind off of those. It doesn't matter if you have an excellent life. It doesn't, happen. It doesn't matter if there is health 
or disease in your family, Jesus identifies with you. He suffers along with you. Every pain that you feel, He feels along with you. Every sorrow, every questioning, every doubt, every pain, He is right there next to you and He identifies with you. This is another part of Christ's ministry as our intercessor. And that's not even all. There is more. Here in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul writing to the Corinthians makes a clear distinction of what happens when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. When we make Christ not only our Savior, but we also recognize Him, we also acknowledge Him as our Lord. Not only Savior, but the Lord of our lives. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The same power, the same power that is sufficient to forgive your sins. The same power that is sufficient to forgive you from every sin you have committed in the past when you first came to Jesus. Is the power that's going to give you strength to overcome sin in your life. It is no different power. It won't be found anywhere else other than in Jesus Christ. The same one who delivered you at first. The same one who covered you with his righteousness. The same one who pardoned you from all the wrong things you did. Is the same power that is going to strengthen you. Now if that hasn't happened, the promise is still there. The promise is still there for you to trust this power completely. Because He's the one who is going to make of each one of us a new creation. And so my brothers and sisters, the sanctuary message makes perfect sense of how we can be judged by our works and saved by grace and saved by faith. The sanctuary message makes perfect sense because no one will be commended to heaven based on the works that they do. They will be commended to heaven based on their faith. And I even mentioned here last time when you think of the thief on the cross who didn't have enough time, who didn't have no time to demonstrate an exemplary Christian life. The life of someone who had been changed. Even though he accepted Jesus and we have the testimony of Jesus himself. That the thief on the cross will be in paradise. We know that he died that very day. He didn't have the opportunity to live a Christian life afterwards. Think about people who accept Jesus in their deathbed. And they accept Jesus now and maybe three hours later they pass away. Maybe the next day they pass away. They have no, not enough time. They don't have time to live a life that is a Christian life. But yet, they can still be admitted to heaven. Because the Lord will search the hearts. The Lord will see the testimony of your faith. And He will bring you into the kingdom. But on the day of atonement. On the day of atonement. God's people was commanded to rest. And to afflict their souls. There has been much scholarly study on what afflict soul, their souls might mean. 
But whatever that exactly means, we know that they were expected to fast. They were expected to rest. They were expected not to do any work. And so that tells us that they were expected to rest and to trust fully in the Lord. Their job was to confess and leave their sins. Their, their job was to confess sins and abandon them. Everything else would be performed by the high priest on their behalf. Likewise, we are invited today to confess our sins, to leave them behind, and then to trust fully in the work of Jesus Christ. The sanctuary message reminds us of the assurance of salvation. But one might think, two things. One might think, why did I call this series ripe when I haven't mentioned the word ripe any time? Not last time, not today. Well, it will come next, next time, two weeks from today. We'll talk about the ripe element in this message. But one might ask another question. So, Pastor, are you saying then that it was only from beginning in 1844? It was only from 1844 that Jesus is now helping you not to fall in your sins. It is only from 1844 that Jesus is now uh, empowering you. It is only from 1844 that Jesus is identifying with you. Is it only from 1844 that Jesus is making new creation Christians? What about people who lived before 1844? What about those who, who never uh, came to the time to live within this time frame? I am not saying that. Jesus has always done that. Jesus has always helped his people. Jesus has always identified and suffered with those who suffer. So there must be something special about 1844 and the Day of Atonement we are living here today. There must be, or else it wouldn't be in the Bible. So what is it? It has to do with the ripening thing. And we'll talk about that next time. And so I, I encourage you to make plans to be here in two weeks. That we can talk about this. But in the meantime, remember... In the meantime, remember that this is a special time we are living in. It is a time, according to the Bible, that it is not only the last days of history. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 1, that the, the, uh, God has spoken to the fathers through the prophets many times and in many different ways. But in these last days... So even from the early church time in the first century, it was already the last days... But the book of Daniel also says that there is another time frame called the time of the end. And there when Daniel has the visions, the angel comes to give him an explanation. And the angel says, as far as the vision is concerned, that is still for the time of the end. So there must be something special. There must be something special. And I invite you to come back here two weeks from today. And in the meantime, remember... Jesus is working on your behalf. Our job is to confess our sins, to abandon them, and to be resting fully in the merits and in the work of our Savior. Because He is not like the high priests that once functioned in the earthly tabernacle. He is one undefiled, separate from sinners, absolutely able and fitting to be our high priest and intercessor.
May the Lord bless us all today and always. Amen. Amen.